Section 27 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Death the way to spiritual life. Christ's servants must follow him. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. These same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it into life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. There is more going on in some people's minds than we are aware of. The case of the Greeks before us is a remarkable proof of this. Who would have thought when Christ was on earth that foreigners from a distant land would have come forward in Jerusalem and said, Sir, we would see Jesus? Who these Greeks were, what they meant, why they desired to see Jesus, what their inward motives were, all these questions we cannot answer. Like Zacchaeus, they may have been influenced by curiosity. Like the wise men from the East, they may have surmised that Jesus was the promised King of the Jews, whom all the Eastern world was expecting. Enough for us to know that they showed more interest in Christ than Caiaphas and all his companions. Enough to know that they drew from our Lord's lips sayings which are still read in 150 languages from one end of the world to the other. We learn, for one thing, from our Lord's words in this passage, that death is the way to spiritual life and glory. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. This sentence was primarily meant to teach the wandering Greeks their true nature of Messiah's kingdom. If they thought to see a king like the other kings of this world, they were greatly mistaken. Our Lord would have them know that he came to carry a cross and not wear a crown. He came not to live a life of honor, ease, and magnificence, but to die a shameful and dishonored death. The kingdom he came to set up was to begin with a crucifixion, not with a coronation. Its glory was to take its rise not from victories won by the sword and from accumulated treasures of gold and silver, but from the death of its king. But this sentence was also meant to teach a wider and broader lesson still. It revealed, under a striking figure, the mighty foundation truth, that Christ's death was to be the source of spiritual life to the world. From his cross and passions was to spring up a mighty harvest of benefit to all mankind. His death, like a grain of seed corn, was to be the root of blessings and mercies to countless millions of immortal souls. In short, the great principle of the gospel was once more exhibited, that Christ's vicarious death, not his life or miracles or teaching, but his death, was to bring forth fruit to the praise of God and to provide redemption for a lost world. This deep and mighty sentence was followed by a practical application which closely concerns ourselves. He that hateth his life shall keep it, he that would be saved must be ready to give up life itself, if necessary, in order to obtain salvation. 
He must bury his love of the world, with its riches, honors, pleasures, and rewards, with a full belief that in so doing he will reap a better harvest, both here and hereafter. He who loves the life that now is so much that he cannot deny himself anything for the sake of his soul, will find at length that he has lost everything. He, on the contrary, who is ready to cast away everything most dear to him in this life, if it stands in the way of his soul, and to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, will find at length that he is no loser. In a word, his losses will prove nothing in comparison to his gains. Truths such as this should sink deeply into our hearts and stir up self-inquiry. It is as true of Christians as it is of Christ. There can be no life without death. There can be no sweet without bitter. There can be no crown without a cross. Without Christ's death, there would have been no life for the world. Unless we are willing to die to sin and crucify all that is most dear to flesh and blood, we cannot expect any benefit from Christ's death. Let us remember these things and take up our cross daily, like men. Let us for the joy set before us endure the cross and despise the shame, and in the end we shall sit down with our Master at God's right hand. The way of self-crucifixion and sanctification may seem foolishness and waste to the world, just as burying good seed corn seems waste to the child and the fool. But there never lived the man who did not find that, by sowing to the Spirit, he reaped life everlasting. We learn, for another thing, from our Lord's words, that if we profess to serve Christ, we must follow him. If any man serve me, is the saying, let him follow me. That expression, following, is one of wide signification and brings before our minds many familiar ideas. As the soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follows its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. Their knowledge may be very small and their infirmities very great, their grace very weak, and their hope very dim. But they believe what Christ says and strive to do what Christ commands. And of such Christ declares, They serve me, they are mine. Christianity like this receives little from man. It is too thorough, too decided, too strong, too real. To serve Christ in name and form is easy work and satisfies most people. But to follow him in faith and life demands more trouble than the generality of men will take about their souls. Laughter, ridicule, oppression, persecution are often the only reward which Christ's followers get from their world. Their religion is one whose praise is not of men but of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 29. Yet to him that followeth, let us never forget, the Lord Jesus holds out abundant encouragement. Where I am, he declares, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Let us lay to heart these comfortable promises and go forward in the narrow way without fear. The world may cast out our name as evil and turn us out of its society, but when we dwell with Christ in glory, we shall have a home from which we can never be ejected. The world may pour contempt on our religion and laugh us and our Christianity to scorn. But when the Father honors us at the last day, before the assembly of angels and men, we shall find that his praise makes amends for all. Notes, John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Verse 20. 
and there were certain Greeks, etc., etc. Who these Greeks were has exercised the conjectural ingenuity of commentators. They were not downright heathens, it is clear, from the expression that they were of those that came to worship at the feast. No heathen would be admitted to the Passover. They were not, in my judgment, Jews who had lived among the Greeks, until they were more Grecian than Jewish in their language. The word we have rendered Greeks seems to me to make that impossible. I believe that they were men who were by birth heathens, but had become proselytes to Judaism, and as such were regular attendants on the Jewish feasts. That there were many such proselytes wherever Jews lived is a simple matter of fact. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, we read of devout or worshipping Greeks. The leavening influence of Judaism in every part of the heathen world where the scattered Jews dwelt before the coming of Christ was probably very considerable. It is worth notice that as Gentiles, the wise men from the east were among the first to honor our Lord when he was born, so Gentiles were among the first to show interest in him just before his crucifixion. Whether the circumstance recorded in this passage before us took place the same day that our Lord rode in triumph into Jerusalem, or whether there was not a break or interval of a day or two admits of question. Judging from the inquiry of the Greeks, we would see Jesus, it seems unlikely that it happened the same day. It stands to reason that our Lord, at a time when he was riding into Jerusalem on an ass and was the object of popular enthusiasm, would easily have been distinguished and recognized by the Greeks. Moreover, one cannot suppose that the words spoken in the following verse and the miracle of the voice from heaven belong to a time of noise, shouting, and popular acclamation, such as there must have been during the procession. For these reasons, I incline to the opinion that we must suppose an interval of a day or two between this verse and the preceding one. Verse 21. The same came, Philip, Bethsaida, Galilee. Why the Greeks came to Philip more than any other disciple we do not know. It is conjectured that Philip, being an inhabitant of a town in North Galilee, was more likely than any other disciples to be acquainted with Greeks from being very near Tyre and Sidon. But this reason applies quite as much to Andrew, Peter, James, and John, who were all Galileans, as it does to Philip. Is it not worth noticing that Philip's name is a more purely Greek name than any of the other apostles? Does not this indicate that he probably had Greek relatives and connections? The mention of Bethsaida accounts for Philip speaking to Andrew in the next verse. Bethsaida was the native place of Andrew and Peter, and Philip therefore was their fellow townsman. And desired him, saying, Sir. The Greek word rendered desired is more frequently translated asked, besought, prayed. It implies the desire of an inquirer who expresses a wish for a thing and asks whether it is possible for him to have it. The word we render, Sir, is almost always rendered Lord. When rendered Sir, it is addressed by an inferior to a superior. Thus the servant of the householder says, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed? Matthew chapter 13, verse 27. The Pharisees said to Pilate, Sir, we remember the deceiver said. Matthew chapter 27, verse 63. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus three times, Sir. John chapter 4, verses 11, 13, and 19. Here the use of the word marks the respect of the Greeks for our Lord and his apostles. We would see Jesus. The English here fails to express the Greek fully. It is literally, we wish, we desire to see. Concerning the motive of the Greeks in asking to see our Lord, we know nothing certain. 
It may have been nothing but curiosity, like that of Zacchaeus, aroused by hearing rumors about Jesus, and sharpened by seeing the procession of the palm-bearing multitudes at his entry into the city. This alone was enough to excite the attention of Greeks accustomed to the demonstrations of their own countrymen on public occasions. It may possibly be that, like the Canaanitish woman, the centurion of Capernaum, and Cornelius, they had, as proselytes, got hold of the great truths which underlaid Judaism, and were actually looking for a Redeemer. But we do not know. Bengal thinks that at this moment Jesus was engaged in the inner part of the temple, to which an entrance was not open to the Greeks, and for this reason the Greeks could not get at him and have a personal interview. These Greeks, we should note, sought to see Jesus at the very time when the Jews sought to kill him. Verse 22. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. This expression seems to favor the idea that this whole transaction was not on the same day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. On such a day there would hardly be an opportunity for one disciple coming quietly and telling a thing to another. Why Philip chose to tell Andrew we have seen, he was his fellow townsman. And again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. This expression seems to imply that the two apostles consulted together before they told our Lord. Perhaps, as thorough Jews, they did not feel sure that our Lord would care to give an interview to Gentiles and at first hesitated about telling him. They remembered that at one time Jesus had said, Go not into the way of the Gentiles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. On reflection, they probably remembered our Lord's kindness to the Canaanitish mother and the Roman centurion and resolved to tell him. Of course, it is possible that the Greeks only wanted to look at our Lord and see what he was like and not to converse with him. If this was all, the disciples may have doubted whether it was worth mentioning to Jesus. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, It is doubtful whether this was spoken to the two disciples only, or to them and the Greeks before mentioned, or to the twelve alone. I incline to think it must mean to the twelve, and specifically to Andrew and Philip. This hour is come, Son of Man glorified. The true keynote to this verse, and the two which follow, is probably this. Our Lord saw the state of mind in which his followers were. He saw them excited by his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and the desire of strangers like the Greeks to see their master. He saw they were secretly expecting a glorious kingdom to be immediately set up, in which they would have chief places, power, and authority. He proceeds to rectify their conceptions and to remind them of what he had repeatedly told them, his own death. The hour has certainly arrived for my being glorified. I am about to leave the world, ascend up to my Father, finish the work I came to do, and be highly exalted. My earthly ministry of humiliation is ending, and my time of glory is drawing nigh. But all this is to be brought about in a way very different from that which you are thinking about. I am going to a cross first, and not a throne. I am first going to be condemned, crucified, and slain. That glorified means to be crucified, I cannot admit, with such texts as John chapter 7 verse 39 and chapter 12 verse 16 before me, that the cross led to glory, and that through the crucifixion came the glorification, I believe firmly, but the glory came after the suffering. Luke chapter 24 verse 26. Let us note that the hour or season for Christ to finish his ministry was fixed and appointed. Till it came, the Jews could do nothing to stop his preaching or harm his person. Just so it is with his people in one sense. Each is immortal till his work is done. 
Does it not seem that the inquiry of the Greeks has much to do with our Lord's opening words? The Gentiles are beginning to inquire after me. Thus the hour is manifestly come that my work should be finished, and my kingdom fully set up in the world, by my crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you. This is one of those solemn prefaces which are so frequent in John's gospel, and indicate some very weighty truth coming. I think, to you, must surely include not only Andrew and Philip, but all the company around our Lord. Except a corn of wheat, etc., etc. Our Lord here illustrates a great scriptural truth by a very familiar fact in nature. That fact is, that in plants and seeds life comes by death. The seed must be put into the ground, must rot, decay, and die, if we want it to bear fruit and produce a crop. If we refuse to bury the seed, and will keep it without sowing it, we shall never reap any harvest. We must be content to let it die if we want corn. The wealth of spiritual truth which this beautiful figure unfolds is very great. The death of Christ was the life of the world. From it, as a most prolific seed, was to spring an enormous harvest of blessing to souls and of glory to God. His substitution on the cross, his atoning death, were to be the beginning of untold blessings to a lost world. To wish him not to die, to dislike the idea of his death, as the disciples evidently did, was as foolish as to keep seed corn locked up in the granary and to refuse to sow it. I am the corn of wheat, Jesus seems to say. Unless I die, whatever you in your private opinion may think, my purpose in coming into the world will not be accomplished. But if I die, multitudes of souls will be saved. Let us certainly mark here the immense importance which our Lord attaches to his death. Nothing can explain this but the old foundation doctrine of the Bible, that Christ's sacrificial death on the cross is the only satisfaction and atonement for the sin of the world. A passage like this can never be thoroughly explained by those who regard Christ's death as nothing more than a martyrdom or an example of self-denial. It was something far greater and more important than this. It was the dying of a corn of wheat, in order that out of its death should spring up an enormous spiritual harvest. Christ's vicarious death is the world's life. Let us notice here, as elsewhere, the divine wisdom with which our Master illustrated spiritual truth by earthly figures. Illustrations, fitly chosen, strike men much more than abstract arguments. Ministers and teachers of religion should study to use similitudes. Theophylact thinks our Lord meant, by this beautiful figure, to encourage his disciples not to be offended and shaken in mind by his coming death. In his case, as in the natural world, they must remember life comes through death. Zwingle thinks that as with the corn when sown, so it is with the body of Christ. It does us good by dying for us, and not by our eating it. Gill remarks that by abiding alone, in this simile, Christ means that if he did not die, he would be alone in heaven with the Father and the elect angels, but without any of the souls of men. Scott says the same. Verse 25. He that loveth his life, etc. There are few of our Lord's sayings more frequently recorded by the Holy Ghost than this pair of paradoxes. The repetition shows its great importance. It will be found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, chapter 16, verse 25, Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Luke chapter 9, verse 24, chapter 17, verse 33, as well as here. The meaning is plain. 
He that loves his life, or thinks more of the life that now is, than that which is to come, shall lose that which is the best part of his life, his soul. He that hateth his life, or cares little for it compared to the life to come, shall preserve to eternal glory that which is the best part of his life, to wit his soul. One object of our Lord in saying these words was evidently to prevent his disciples from looking for good things in this life if they followed him. They must give up their Jewish ideas about temporal rewards and honors in Messiah's service. They must understand that his kingdom was entirely spiritual, and that if they were his disciples, they must be content to lose much in this life in order to gain the glory of the life to come. So far from promising them temporal rewards, he would have them distinctly know that they must give up much and sacrifice much if they wanted to be saved. The other object our Lord had in view in saying these words was to teach all Christians in every age that like him they must make up their minds to sacrifice much and to die to the world in the hope of a harvest of glory in a world to come. Through death we must seek life. Eternal life must be the great end a Christian looks to. To attain it he must be willing to give up everything. The practical condemnation which this verse passes on the life lived by many should never be overlooked. How few hate their lives here! How many love them and care nothing but how to make them more comfortable and happy! The eternal loss or the eternal gain are often entirely forgotten. Augustine gives wise caution. Take heed, lest there steal upon thee a will to make away with thyself, while thou takest in the sense that it is a duty to hate thine own life in this world. Hence certain malignant and perverse men give themselves to the flames, choke themselves in the water, dash themselves in pieces, and so perish. Christ taught not this. Not by himself, but by another, must that man be put to death who would follow in Christ's footsteps. The word hate here must be taken comparatively. It is a Hebraism, like Jacob I have loved and Esau I hated. Your appointed feasts my soul hateth. Romans chapter 9 verse 13, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 14. Scott thinks this verse was meant to teach the Greeks and all the disciples to arm themselves with a mind like their masters if they wanted to follow him. Verse 26. If any man serve me, follow me. This verse seems spoken for the benefit and information of the Greeks who sought to see Jesus and of all who desired to become his disciples. If any man desires to serve Christ and be a Christian, he must be content to follow his master, walk in his footsteps, share his lot, do as he did, and partake of his master's inheritance in this world. He must not look for good things here, for crowns, kingdoms, riches, honors, wealth, and dignity. Like his master, he must be content with a cross. He must, in a word, take up his cross and follow me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. As St. Paul says, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And where I am, there my servant be. This is the first thing that Christ promises to those who follow him. They shall be with Christ wherever he is, in paradise and in his glorious kingdom. He and his servant shall not be parted. Whatever the master has, the servant shall have also. It is a comfortable thought that however little we know of the life to come and the state after death, we do know that we shall be with Christ, which is far better. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. 
If any man serve me, my father honor. This is the second thing which Jesus promises to his disciples. The Father shall give, to those who love Christ, such honor as eye hath not seen nor ear heard. Honor from the men of this world they may not have. Honor from the Father shall make amends for all. It is impossible not to see throughout this verse that our Lord's intention is to discourage the carnal and earthly expectation of his Jewish followers, and yet to encourage them by showing what they might confidently look for. They must follow in his steps, if they were his true servants, and in so following they would find a cross and not a crown, whatever they might be thinking, at that moment, while the hosannas of an excited crowd were sounding in their ears. But though they had a cross, they should not miss a reward finally, which would make amends for all. They would be with Christ in glory. They would be honored by God the Father. The words, Him will my Father honor, of course admit of being applied to this life in a certain sense. Them that honor me I will honor, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. But it is much more agreeable to the context, I think, to apply them to the honor which shall be given in another world. The clearest conception we can form of heaven is that which is here stated. It is being with Christ and receiving honor from God. Heaven is generally described by negatives. This is, however, an exceptional positive. It is being with Christ. Compare John chapter 14, verse 3, chapter 17, verse 24, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Let us note how wisely and mercifully our Lord always damped and checked the unscriptural expectations of his disciples. Never on any occasion do we find him keeping back the cross or bribing men to follow him, as Muhammad did, by promising temporal comfort and happiness. End of section 27